When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the weekend and a very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Today with me, Harry Robinson, and my co-host Jack Tate, we discuss what appears to be the imminent arrival of five-time UEFA Champions League winning midfielder Casemiro. Have United got one of Europe's very best midfielders or is it another signing made too late? Or is this a completely befuddling mix of both the excellent and a potential regret? We'll talk about also rumours on a potential investor to the club in Sir Jim Ratcliffe and what it means to the Glazer family's ownership. And finally, in Series 8, Episode 6, we'll preview Monday's match. We can't say exciting, we could say fearsome, against Liverpool. Uh, We'll begin with Casemiro, a 30-year-old Brazilian midfielder who appears very close to joining United. On Friday morning, he trained with Real Madrid, but in that lunchtime's press conference, manager Carlo Ancelotti explained that Casemiro, and I quote, wants to try a new challenge and a new opportunity. I and the club understand it with what he's done at this club and the person he is, we have to respect it. There are talks right now, nothing is official, but he wants to leave. The club he wants to join, and would you believe it, is ours. Tumultuous, fractured and enduring a torrid season start. Casemiro wants a new challenge and if it's a challenge he wants, he'd certainly be coming to the right place. Nothing confirmed yet and I expect if this is to happen it will take a few more days at least. But Jack, give me your one sentence, 10 second reaction to this first before we dive into some of the specifics of the deal. A good player, a terrible process. (laughs) Yeah. Even shorter than 10 seconds and lovely and concise. I think uh, to, to go through this because it's, it's, it's a, a piece of news and a transfer that has, is and will really, really divide opinion because clearly he is a really good player who has been at the top of his game for half a decade now and one of the crucial pins in Real Madrid's kind of European conquering side with a ridiculous number of European Cups slash Champions Leagues, Club World Cups, whatever. But here is also a United team and club and coaching setup and and just whole area in complete turmoil. So I think to try and have this conversation without just flitting about into everywhere, let's begin just by talking about Casemiro as the player. And as I say, he's he's been properly good for a, a, a such a number of years now. And and to have him linked and potentially joining United, and it looks likely now, is exciting just in terms of that, isn't it? It is, absolutely. I mean, especially when you consider the calibre of player that we have been linked to generally in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, basically since the Brighton game, it felt like we we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of 
players that are out there obviously a few days ago or until a few days ago it looked like we were going to be getting Rabio, who for all intents and purposes is a poor man's Casemiro effectively and yeah. you know maybe even sort of a lesser version of Casemiro even than that so I think you know this sort of came out of nowhere when the story came out and since then it's moved quite quickly I think the player himself you know there's very little doubts about to be honest Casemiro is like you mentioned, one of the most decorated players of this generation and on the pitch is an exact profile of player that we want. I think I remember mentioning Casemiro as the type of player that we want about two years ago on this podcast. And I think at the time I said someone like Casemiro because Casemiro himself, like he's sort of out of reach. He's never going to leave. Yeah, exactly. So, so blatantly unavailable a couple of years ago. And to be honest, I would have thought certainly last summer and this summer, just, I don't think anyone expected, I don't think Real Madrid will have expected Casemiro. No, exactly. And so actually I think the player can't really fault it very much. The The only real downside of Casemiro as a player is his age. You know, we've obviously had some experience with signing players at this sort of age on inflated, relatively long contracts, which Casemiro is going to be signed on, which yeah. we can obviously get into more. But in terms of what he brings to us on the pitch, he's a player we need of very high quality. And we, I said at the start of the summer that if it was going to be the case that we only signed one midfielder, which it looks increasingly likely that it might be, I would rather it be a number six than a number eight. So yeah. honestly, if I think if it came down to it, I... I if we only ended up signing Casemiro, it's not a good thing at all. We should yeah. be also signing, signing another midfielder, but we have players that can fill in the number eight role alongside Casemiro more than we could have players that could fill the Casemiro role alongside, a, let's say, a De Jong or a Milinkovic-Savage or whoever. Absolutely. And we'll talk a bit more about how he would fit into Ten Hag's team in a second, but just on that, yeah, given it looks like Christian Eriksen is kind of our best option at number six, which is strange to say. Yeah, number six is clearly the area where United need to sign a player most. I mean, Casemiro is the man that Zinedine Zidane saw as kind of his Makaleli, the man who invented basically this position of the the ball-winning, ball-winning destructive number six who protects the defence and he worked so well in that Real Madrid team with with players, not just like Kroos and Modric in front of him who were kind of converted number 10s, but also with like attacking defenders like Sergio Ramos and Marcelo and Danny Carvajal. It, so much was left down to Casemiro to basically protect Real Madrid in transitions. And that's probably the key area where Casemiro would strengthen United is, is, is in transitions. He's a player with such who's so well respected by every manager and every player and not just on the pitch, but his off the pitch work ethic and professionalism. Uh, there was a really nice line. Uh, there's a great interview with him in, in the Spanish magazine Panenka, which has been translated partially in the athletic, partially on football Espana, I think where he talks about, he says, the first thing I want to see after a game is how many recoveries or interceptions I've made. These are my numbers, my goals, my assists. And there's another really nice line from Rodrigo. I think it is who talks about how Casemiro is one of the players who's changed the stereotype of the lazy Brazilian or the lazy South American because he's a guy like Cristiano Ronaldo who has that ultra hard work ethic, has the oxygen chambers, the electric recovery boots, the morning sessions in the gym, etc. So United getting not just a, a really good player, but and we'll move on to age in a bit, but also a proper leader, a humble leader for the dressing room. Absolutely, yeah. We talked a lot about how this United team, especially in the last few weeks, is extremely low on confidence. Mentally, we are extremely fragile. De Gea said it himself after conceding the first goal against Brentford. Yeah. And Casemiro, admittedly, we also have a few other players in that old Real Madrid 
Champions League winning squad who should you would think would also be dragging the the mental <laughs> side of this team up but you know Casemiro based on his experience yeah. he is a winner ultimately I think that's the one thing you can say about that that Real Madrid team of the last sort of six or seven years is that even when they haven't been at their best and haven't been the best team on the pitch they are winners and you know there have been so many occasions where that seemingly that ability to seemingly sort of drag them through games where they are yeah. clearly the inferior team is something that hopefully Casemiro will, will bring to United on the pitch as well, you know, we've talked so much about how defensive transitions is what we've really, really struggled with in defence for years. Yeah. And it's obviously plagued us again at the start of this, see, this see year. See Brentford, see Brighton. Right. And Casemiro is one of the best in the world at, at dealing with defensive transitions. You mentioned there, look, all he cares about are his ball recoveries, his pass breakups, his interceptions. You know, that is exactly the kind of player that we haven't had for the, for. You know, I'm, I'm actually trying to think. Matt, like Matic, a defensive really midfielder, Jack. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Matic is the only player we've had anywhere near that kind of profile. And by the time we got Matic, he was past his best. And even then, last season, I think some of our best performances still came with Matic in the team. Such was our need for someone of this profile. I also think what's interesting in terms of leadership is that Casemiro is a player who had to prove himself. He was kind of let go at Real Madrid by Carlo Ancelotti in the past to Porto and Real Madrid had to enact the buyback clause at Porto as well. And then he, even after he came back under Benitez and then under Zidane, he still had to prove himself and eventually did and became kind of the uh, the essential core to that Real Madrid midfield, which then dominated Europe. And I think that will resonate with many United players and we could list all sorts of examples, but this is the whole team, Rashford, Maguire, Shaw, Dallow, etc., who all have been good in the past or have not and need to improve themselves and improve themselves on the very biggest stage at one of the world's biggest clubs. Casemiro has done that um, and he's also mentored many young players. The other interesting thing I think is looking at the attitude of the selling club because you mentioned there about us having signed players at this age before at 30 and, and giving them long-term deals and it not working out. And that's absolutely true. The main example is probably Bastian Schweinsteiger. It was obvious why Bayern Munich wanted to let him go, even though we were really excited. And that's something we we really had to learn from. You even look at Raphael Varane, who's had four or five injury problems since joining from Real Madrid last summer. That looked like a great deal. It still could work out well. But... I think there is obviously a reason Real Madrid is selling and this brings us on to the finances of the deal but I don't think in this case it's to do with being injury prone though we may be proved wrong on that but he's been virtually indestructible for half a decade and rarely rested. The, the difference is that Real have signed his replacement twice already basically. They have two of the best young midfielders in the world coming through in Camavinga and Tremani. Two players United have scouted and two very talented young French midfielders. They have Fede Valverde already. And so I think it's less Real thinking, let's get rid of him while he still has value and more Real thinking there's a good offer here. We have good replacements, but they're not happy about this. I mean, Ancelotti said earlier on Friday, he said, I can't reply as to why Casemiro traded European champions for a struggling side. It's his personal decision. It's the quote of someone who thinks, why, why are you leaving me? And in a way, I think maybe this is one of those transfers where Ancelotti won't be happy with it. The manager of Real Madrid won't be happy. The board will. Yeah, before, before I sort of get onto well, how Ancelotti might, might be feeling about it, I think it's quite funny to think that at some point over the last decade, pretty much, I think United have potentially been very close to signing almost every single person who is a key member of that Real Madrid Champions yeah. League winning machine. Yeah. Right? Because we, we obviously had the keenings of like the likes of Bale and Kroos back when Moyes and Van Hal were manager. We've had Ramos, very close to Ramos in the past. 
Yep, Carvajal. Now Casemiro. have obviously already signed for and Ronaldo. I'd say Casemiro back before would he seemed the, the least likely as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and even if you go all the way back, Benzema, Benzema before he even yeah. went to Real Madrid, we were on the verge of signing him when he was at Leon. <laughs> so and and Varane we were much, as well, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. The only ones off the top of my head, and, and we obviously have, have had Di Maria in the past as well. So yeah. <laughs> we've actually... No, I think... I, I was about to say, I think we were linked with Casillas at one point, but I think that I think I'm... Confusing okay, him with but Ramos, Kalor Navas, yeah. we were. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, I think with the exception, pretty much of Eden Hazard, who hasn't really played a huge part in that team in the, since he's been there anyway. We have been. Well, I mean, we almost like signed every... Hazard from Lille before he we went to Chelsea, so you've got the whole uh, lot. Yeah, they, <laughs> just funny how uh, how things can shake out, and now we're, we're starting to just sign them after they turn thirty instead. Um, but, yeah, well, I mean, we can come on to that. <laughs> on, on Casemiro himself, yeah, I think the. The way Ancelotti is talking about it has made me feel better about the deal because I think this time yesterday, I, I thought this was very clearly sort of Casemiro just going for the money and there was sort of no other reason why. But the way that Ancelotti has, has spoken about it, because normally when a player moves some money, they're very clearly either being pushed out or like the, the team they're leaving at the very least doesn't really yeah. need them. And Ancelotti's comments about Casemiro don't signal that at yeah. all. It just didn't, that, that was not the way you normally deal with a player who is only moving for money. Now, I'm not saying that Casemiro would be coming to United if he was earning half of what we've offered yeah. him. We obviously need to do something at the moment to attract players because we aren't in a position footballing-wise to compete with the likes of Real Madrid. But it does, I, I do sort of buy into a little bit more the side of things that maybe this actually is Casemiro wanting a new football challenge, as, as well as obviously being offered a huge contract. We've said all good things so far, but there are some concerns. Absolutely. I think the key one being, where was this money before? It could have been used early in the window to fix long-term problems with cheaper, more sensible and younger buys. And this goes back to what you were just saying, that we've been linked with all of those Real Madrid players who won the Champions League four or five times or three over the last decade. And we were linked with them before they went to Real Madrid, but we didn't get them. And this goes back to Hazard and to Bale and to Benzema and to Varane. That's going back a long time, but much more recently to Cam- to Camavinga and Tumani. Why, why is it that we're signing only players after they've had their best years at Real Madrid? And that's the real concern is that United are signing a really, really good player here and one that's exciting and I'm excited by it if he comes. But at the same time, you can be worried and not necessarily worried that Casemiro isn't going to work out at United, but you can you can think that it represents a wider problem in that we cannot find, we cannot source those gems before they have their peak years elsewhere in Europe. And that's why ultimately United are the sixth best team in England rather than the champions of Europe. Yeah. And and I think the process is where this transfer begins to sort of fall down. You know, firstly, where is, where has the the money been? I, I refuse to believe that there haven't been any players that Ten Hag, Richard Arnold, John Murta, whoever have had on their radar for, you know, 60 or 70 million pounds. We've obviously had this De Jong, and this is to some degree, Harry, goes back to something that you said that I think it was after the Brighton game where you mentioned that, you know, the money might be there on paper for De Jong, but it's because we were sort of harping on with that deal yeah. for so long, it stopped it from being able to be freed up for other targets. And I think, to be honest, that is where this money has been all that time. I think United seemed to have this blind faith that the De Jong deal was eventually going to be resolved. I think Chelsea coming in and seemingly leapfrogging us in that, even though it didn't eventually get done to Chelsea, yeah. I think maybe 
made United realise how fragile that deal actually was. And I think that's why you've probably seen us now being able to supposedly offer all this money for so many other targets because it's suddenly now been freed up from De Jong. And it kind of makes you wonder if that hadn't have been the case, you know, how many other targets for less money would we have been able to sign? You know, would we have been able to sign two 30, 40 million pound midfielders instead of having it all tied up in the De Jong deal? And then effectively, you just sort of move that money to the Casemiro deal, which is going to be around the same sort of price. So again, it's it's just another part of the process of this transfer where things have sort of fallen down, and you know it's very clearly just poor planning by United. And also the the potential repercussions of this if it goes badly, say Casemiro isn't completely indestructible and can't almost and can't play almost every game. Touch wood. The repercussions are large. It's another addition to a silly wage structure. It's a relatively long term deal for a thirty year old who, at the end of his contract, will have no sell on value. Regardless of what I think of his age in terms of his playing, he will have no sell on value at the end of his contract and when he leaves United and it leaves less funds fewer funds for future transfer windows when United are going to need funds for every transfer window going forward because in three years four years time United will have to replace Casemiro if he joins and will have to spend this money again whereas with someone like De Jong for however many other risks there were just in terms of age and how long he could serve the club in, in terms of his contract he would either leave for a good fee at the end of it or halfway through it, or he would stay for 10 years, making the the transfer fee better value for money, effectively. I also ultimately think the finances are large on this, but he's very good. And when Guardiola, this is on the age point, when Guardiola joined City, Fernandinho, who's been kept out of the Brazil team for years by Casemiro, Fernandinho was 31 when Guardiola joined City. He left when he was 37. It might have lasted a couple of years too many, yeah, but it worked out pretty well for them. And just further on that, Claude McAuley joined Chelsea when he was 30. So, I don't think a player being 30 and spending a lot of money on them in and of itself is a problem. I think it's a problem when you're in the kind of position that United are in. Because yeah. realistically, you want to be signing players around this age when you're at a point where one or two players is enough to sort of put you right over the top and competing for the league or the Champions League. I mean, look at Liverpool with Thiago, for example. It's probably a, a good... A good comparison there, right? A player who came in... Cheaper as well. Cheaper and adds, you know, similarly for Liverpool, it was a clear upgrade on their current midfield options, addressed a weakness. But the difference is that Thiago, I mean, how old was he when he joined Liverpool? Was he 29? I think he's 31 now. Yeah, he's 29, yeah. So, you know, very sort of similar, similar age as Casemiro, similar sort of background as well, really. But... Difference is Thiago clearly was a, a player that he joining Liverpool alone could take them to levels where they could compete for the Champions League, the Premier League, whatever. United aren't really in that yeah. in that position, and so you know I, this was actually a tweet from a Liverpool fan, but I think it has some some logic in it that I saw on my timeline yesterday. Is that Casemiro could be a very good signing for United, and realistically, he could move the needle from us instead of maybe finishing seventh or eighth and t- change it to fifth or sixth. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is the reality of where we are at the moment. And if that's the case, he could still be have played really well. But then three years from now, our highest finish with Casemiro in the team might have been fourth. And then we still yeah. got to shell out another £80 million and another defensive midfielder to replace Casemiro in three years. You know, that is yeah. obviously the downside to this deal. And is it is it worth it to shell out this money for a player who could be could be a very good player for United, but also still be part of a failing team? Yeah, is this another example of United seeing a very good player available and thinking, yes, we'll have that. Exactly. 
a la Cristiano Ronaldo, Rafael Varane, even Jadon Sancho, uh, and many, many others in the past. And I, and I think, at the, you know, at the time when we signed Varane and Ronaldo, I think it made sense because we did feel like we were we were in that sort of position. Yeah, obviously, yeah. we didn't know what was going on down the line. Scenes. Right, a year down the line, we've obviously got a very, very different take on on the way we should have been approaching this. Yeah, I also think the other reality. The harsh reality is Casemiro could have four very good years at United and it's possible he would leave having had a good impact, but having never been a part of United's team anywhere near challenging for the title. In which case, I I don't want to say, I mean, I'm going to say it. I had a university lecturer who said, when you want to say something, but you don't quite know how to phrase it, just say, I'm going to say it ugly. So I'm going to say it ugly. What's the point in that case? (laughs) It's a crude way of putting it, but yeah, you know... it, that gets to the to the crux of this is what what's the what is the point of spending sixty million pounds on a, on a great midfielder who even if they are great again might be part of a failing team and that is, like that is that is the difficulty right when you're in any sort of sort of rebuilding a squad yeah. position as yeah. a club you do have to prioritize who's going to be around for a long time because that is when you're actually going to reap the rewards of what they can do like it it feels. Like a, a bit of a waste, I guess, to to kind of follow your your thing, Harry. If it's a waste, if it's not worth it, it feels like a bit of a waste to potentially make a very very good signing, but still see a team on the pitch that is not getting anywhere near where you want them to be. Yeah, and then that signing to to have to leave because they get too old, and that is a position we're potentially putting ourselves. I think in now. the the argument against all of what we've just said is Casemiro's character, and if, um, I've been really impressed by what. I read about him, not just in the last day or two, but over the last few years. This is a properly, properly impressive just person, actually, who has proved himself against the odds, like with, I mean, pretty much any South American player has really, really proved himself against the odds and come from from nothing. But also at Real Madrid has been a genuine inspiration for some of the younger players like Rodrigo and Vinicius especially and and could do that at United as well and could be a proper leader and at 30 still has more to prove having only I mean he enjoyed success at Porto absolutely but major 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 success at, in, in Spain so I think that's that might be the his character and his potential role in, in leadership in that dressing room could be the thing that tilts this into optimism and and yes, this is a good signing. I think we should move on because we're going to look very silly if he doesn't actually sign for United. Uh, so if he does, we can talk about where exactly he'll fit. But I think overall we're saying, oh, okay, overall I'm saying I'm optimistic. This potential deal is dragged down by the fact United haven't signed another midfielder. If De Jong had been brought in already, I'd make this a proper eight or nine out of 10 signing. Without De Jong, it's a, or another midfielder, it's a, I think I'm going to go six out of 10. It has room to be really good. There is the potential for it to have bad consequences and it highlights major long-term issues that are still there at the club. I think if I was going to give it a rating out of 10, I'd go five. Just because I think, I think Casemiro is a very good player and I think this is a, this is a pretty decent signing, but I think the best case scenario is still not that great because of the rest of the team around him. Yeah. And the worst case scenario is very, very bad. Like there's much more downside than upside to this signing. And I don't really think that's anything to do with Casemiro himself. I think it's to do with the situation where the team is in and the way that this signing sort yeah. of, the way that this signing works alongside where the team currently is. So player, good, process, bad, which takes us back to what I said at the beginning. <laughs> 
The United merry-go-round has been a little out of control this week. Let's move on from Casemiro. As uh, one red I know mused, you have to feel for reporters covering United full-time. When do they get time for their tea? And as a reporter I know replied, at midnight. I've been fortunate to be removed from much of it while on holiday this week, including the shock of a game at the weekend and a result, but I arrived back home to the news that Sir Jim Ratcliffe, owner of Ineos, who invested in various sports, most notably cycling and French football club Nice, and Ratcliffe from Greater Manchester is interested in buying United. He put a last minute unsuccessful 4.25 billion bid for Chelsea some months ago and for someone experienced and with such a public buying process for Chelsea and a drawn out one, some people wondered at the time whether Ratcliffe's late intervention was more of a pressure play on the Glazer family than an intention to actually buy Chelsea. And they may have been right. Uh, the 69-year-old is Britain's richest man. He got his fortune from chemicals and a United fan. And reports suggest he would be the main part in a consortium involving former players and Sir Dave Brailsford, former head of British Cycling. A spokesperson told the Times that if the club is for sale, Jim is definitely a potential buyer. Jim is looking at what can be done now and knowing how important the club is to the city, it feels like the time is right for a reset. This is clearly exciting news with many reasons to offer many, many caveats. Um, yeah, but it's exciting. For, and I think it's stating the obvious as to why, but for 17 years, the Glazer family have overseen United that first gradual and then quite sudden decline and slide into relative mediocrity, all the while using the club as a cash cow, taking out dividends, selling shares for personal benefit, and at no point no point investing any money of their own, but also at no point engaging with supporters. So it would be wonderful to see a new owner of Manchester United. On the other hand, I don't think United fans should just welcome anyone into the club. But this is having more conversation around this after the sustained protest of the last 18 months is obviously a good thing, Jack. Without without a shadow of a doubt, it's a good thing. And even if it doesn't sort of come to anything, these stories don't come out of nowhere. And... It means, A, there does seem to be, at least to some degree, slightly more willingness on the part of the Glazers to think about, whether, even if it's not selling the entire club, at least selling a minority stake, which had been somewhat reported yeah. over the over the last few days. And it also signals that there is interest from a serious buyer in Sir Jim yeah. Ratcliffe. And that is, I think, something that has always some kind of worried me a little bit, thinking, you know, we talked before about just football clubs are so expensive now. You know, reports that United would be worth four or five billion pounds. We talked before that the only the only people really that can afford that kind of money very often now are yeah. countries. You know, we've seen with Man City, with Newcastle, PSG, and that isn't a, that isn't really an alternative to me that I yeah. want to go down. And so it's it's good at least just to have some indication that there are people that even if Jim Ratcliffe himself isn't the exact person that you would want. There is, it's just good indication that there are people out there, the types of people that you would want owning Man United and not corrupt countries, basically. Yeah, I and think... that in itself is a, is a good thing. Yeah, I think the Chelsea situation and saga showed exactly how much interest there is in buying Premier League clubs. Yeah. There, was, yeah. there were a hundred investors, separate investors interested, or who at least made their interest known in buying Chelsea. That's a huge number. And obviously that one was different because, I mean, for many reasons, mainly that, that Chelsea had to be sold and quickly and rather than someone having to convince the Glazer family to sell. But it showed the level of interest there, particularly from the US. Uh, and it, But yeah, this is positive. But 
I, I'd be very wary of just welcoming Ratcliffe or anyone else in completely. Uh, we want the Glazers gone, but their successors have to commit to, they have to, they have to commit to many things to whether it's a supporter's golden share or to some supporter ownership. Uh, it definitely has to include investing in the club's facilities. It has to include a commitment to not take out dividends at certain times, to not sell shares without putting anything back into the club. All Basically all the things that the Glazer family have done. I mean, it just gives some hope. And I'm very wary because I don't see why the time would be now for the Glazer family to sell. This is not the end of their opportunity to use the club as a cash cow. There have been chances before to take money on offer and to leave. They've already taken a billion pounds out of the club. They could take another four billion on the table, but there have been those opportunities before and they must care about being involved in some way. And yet that doesn't tally with how they get themselves involved, as we've seen over the last 17 years. It's the reason for the Glazers owning the family beyond money is is always confusing. So I, I don't have... I have hope, but I don't want to let, let it kind of run away with me. There'll be another protest by the 1958 group before Monday's game. And I think that needs to be big and could have, uh, could have a good impact in bringing this new cycle or continuing this new cycle and this story on into the end of August as well. I, th- I think the biggest credit you can pay to everyone that's been involved in, in these protests and we're just trying to bring so much more attention and expose everything that's wrong with the Glazers is the way that the, the big media outlets have started talking and discussing Man United. Gary Neville has obviously been a bit of a champion of this for a number of years, but other than him, there hasn't really been much attention played to the Glazers' role in Man United's failings. It has because it's just the easy thing to, to sort of harp on about. It's been about the managers failing or about the players not being good enough or the players not caring enough. And all of that is completely valid. I and, mean, you know, we've spent a number of hours talking about all of that, Harry, as well. But... I think the the biggest credit, like I said, that you can pay to everyone that has been involved in the past protests that have been going on, the planned protests against Liverpool, is that that among the big media outlets now, there has been so much more attention played to the Glazers and the fact that this club is just, it's rotten inside. And it shouldn't really have taken this long to get there because United fans have been screaming about this for before even Ferguson retired. It has taken so much sustained bad times on the pitch for the sort of big media outlets to realise this can't just be managers and bad groups of players because we've had so many different cycles of them and things still keep going wrong. And so I think now is the time most certainly to capitalise on that. In terms of why the Glazers would want to sell, I mean, I, I get what you're saying that I don't really know exactly why now. I don't see why now in terms of the financials of it because the club isn't doing it really any better or worse than it has done over the last five years or so, the only thing I could ever think of is that maybe they just don't want the hassle anymore. It's possible, yeah. But to be honest, they like you said, they've they've seen, but we've yeah, given them hassle yeah. before, you know. And if they didn't, they didn't want the hassle, they would have sold up as soon as anyone started piping up about the problems with the Glazers or the second things started getting difficult on the pitch. So I don't really know, but to a certain degree, I've stopped trying to second guess what the Glazers are thinking because, yeah. Like, like you mentioned, if, if I start doing that, I start thinking about why, why do they even own the club in the first place? You know, and that also does, doesn't really make sense. So I think it's, it's just about trying to put as much pressure on as we can as fans and keep trying to stick it to them and hope that eventually something does change. We saw, we yeah. saw last year after the Liverpool, after the European Super League stuff that there was, there was willingness to, I'm not going to say willingness to change. So I don't believe much has changed, 
but there was willingness to pretend to change. And that is often a first step because it's like there, it was at least recognition from their part that enough was enough with how things were going and that the fans wouldn't just accept everything remaining the same. Like I said, that all has mainly turned out to be lip service. So it's how yeah. do we make sure they, they stick to anything. But it was, a, it was a sign to me that at least direct action from fans will have some impact on the creators. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about this again in the future. It will be, just imagine the, the feeling of relief and excitement and happiness yeah. were it to happen one day. And, and also, like, I'm also kind of excited to see the protest on Monday as well because it is the perfect time you could ever wish for. Probably our biggest game of the season on a Monday night where there's no other games going on. The focus of the entire football country is on that one game. And, you know, MNF on Sky Sports always has the biggest build-up of any game of the week, a full hour beforehand. You know, that this will be the biggest spotlight we'd ever have on these kind of protests. And that is the way to get to people yeah, like the Glazers. Absolutely. Right, let's talk about that game quickly. We haven't got long. It's um back to the, the on-pitch football. This is hardly the ideal fixture. A 9-0 aggregate loss last season. I was at both and con- confirmed that they were two of the most chastening experiences I've had as a United fan. And it was a 9-0 aggregate win for Liverpool without them really trying that hard. Um, they've started this season in far from ideal fashion themselves. Some injuries, some typical Klopp complaints over the length of the grass and the wind and whatever. Uh, new signing Darwin Nunes is, is taking time to settle. Some high profile misses and one very high profile red card, which means he'll be missing for this game. Sadio Mane's left for Bayern Munich. Thiago's injured. Uh, so for them, what better way to forget about their problems than to beat United at Old Trafford again? On the other hand, Eric Tenag needs to win favour with his players, with the media, with the fans. And so the same applies to him and his United team. Is there any way Tenag can get something from this game for United, Jack? Yes, because I think this is pretty much the weakest Liverpool team we're going to face this season at any point. Not having started the season particularly well, Thiago injured, Darwin Nunez suspended, you know, Mane Mane has gone and it it feels like Liverpool are there, somewhat there for the taking. We are there for the taking even more than Liverpool are. So that's kind of the downside of it. But I, I think I approach this game thinking that we have probably more of a chance of doing some damage to Liverpool and also holding them at bay defensively than we would have under normal circumstances. Yeah. The uh, kind of like we mentioned against Brentford, I mentioned in the preview of that, I thought mentally it was going to be the biggest challenge. And I think it will be again, because obviously with the protests and everything happening outside Old Trafford, I think there is a chance that there is a very strange atmosphere in the ground. There's a chance that there may be a decent number of empty seats as the game begins at Old Trafford with potentially fans staying outside at the protest and also just delays in getting into the ground from the protest. So I think it might be a strange atmosphere. It might be a a sort of difficult one mentally for the players to really lock in and focus on the game without all of the, all of the distractions that would obviously be going on at the time. Yeah. I think that will probably be the biggest challenge. And we've seen in the past that if, if that concentration isn't there and Liverpool score an early goal, <laughs> we seem to be unable to recover from that. So I think that honestly will probably be the biggest challenge. From there, tactically, I spoke with Kane about potentially going to three at the back. It makes sense from the threat that, that Liverpool pose. It also makes sense to try to maximise what we have on the pitch. And weirdly, despite the fact that we've been bad defensively, defensive centre-back depth is actually one of the strongest parts of the squad. If you could have... Varane, Maguire, Martinez or Lindelof, Maguire, Martinez or Varane, Lindelof, Martinez 
you know, there are combinations you could have there that look very strong on paper and would hopefully help us be able to stop some of Liverpool's threats. Yeah, I think the key is obviously some of those threats aren't there in Darwin and in Thiago especially. But yeah, we need to be so much tighter in, in transition. And I think we need to give up some of those principles that Ten Argus committed to early on and need to make sure the team is is drilled on when to play out and when to go direct because there is talent there and there are ways to use it very effectively against the Liverpool side that can be very open, especially with Trent Alexander-Arnold. But it requires that the basics that United did not show against Brent, Brentford or Brighton. And then on top of that, it requires a couple of brilliant individual performances. And on the mental side of things, that's where, that's where my hope, any small hope falls down on is who could give those performances. And it's hard to think of anyone at the moment. And in terms of who would you hope for most, you, you'd want it to be someone like Maguire or Shaw in an attacking sense or Ericsson really. But it seems it's very difficult to find those really good individual performances that United will need to beat Liverpool. But we can, of course, we could beat Liverpool because any team can, and especially at home and especially with a proper atmosphere. But yeah, the mental side will be really interesting. I didn't think Eric Tenar's press conference before wasn't exactly a rallying call. It was along the same lines as before. It's early in the season and that's how he speaks to the media. We'll see if that's the, the right way to go about it or not. Right, it's time to wrap up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you to our patrons, especially, for your support and for allowing us to record twice a week this season, as we are with this episode. We will be back on Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday morning, reviewing Monday night's game against Liverpool. Come on, Eric, give us the unexpected. Have a great weekend, whatever you're up to, resting or working, and goodbye. We'll speak to you next week. Network.